Hello and welcome to the Hockey Hurts Podcast for November 14th of 2015. I'm Ryan Wilson. I'm Cameron Walsh. And this week we are going to jump on the bandwagon and discuss why the NHL does not have as many goals as it should, does not have as much entertainment value as it should, what are some of the things that we believe could help fix the game, and perhaps maybe shed some light on some of the dumber ideas that I've heard, or we have heard, uh, that could help, or people think could help with this issue. Um, then we'll get into some other stuff as well. So, But we're going to start with, uh, for whatever reason lately, I was at the general manager meetings. Is that why this yep, all sparked? Yep, that's the start. Correct, Monday. So we seem like we go through this every year. What can the NHL do to improve scoring? Not to really play a huge spoiler for the entire thing, but um, it really is as simple as call the game like 2005-2006 season, and the problem is solved. I think so. All right, right, podcast is done. Podcast is done. Talk to you next week, guys. See ya. It really Um, is as easy as that. Yep, it it really is. You, You get... I know we've discussed this before. I know you've had the number off the top of your head before. So if you don't, obviously don't go look it up because I know you do. What did Joe Thornton score that first year of the lockout as the league-leading scorer? 120s, right? 120, I think so. And Sid got 100, did he not, in his, his rookie year? 104-ish. 104-ish. All right. There's no way in hell that McDavid or Jack Eichel are going to get that. Nope. No way in hell. Just, it's, just not, it's just not going to happen. And it's not because the players aren't good enough. And the fact that they are trying to get here and say, oh, we need to change the size of the goals or we need to put in another blue line or you have to skate the puck out past the blue line before you can dump it on a penalty kill. It's like, that's just, sorry, it's just fucked. It's, I, it's really, I haven't heard some of those. It's just it's just ridiculous. You get there and go, the rule book is written a particular way so that players that have got the puck have a chance to do something with it. The way the game's being called at the moment, and particularly the game I just watched, that's not how the game's being called. The game's being called to keep the game close. It's quite obvious that the NHL are a parity league at the moment, and, and they want to make sure that everybody's got a chance at any given night to win. But that doesn't help the teams that have put money into their structure to have star players and to have those star players entertain, make money for the club, make money for the owner and therefore make money for the players. And it's just, it's not there. I I just don't understand why a lot of people like you and me and people that listen to the podcast and a shitload of other people can watch the game, can see that it's being bogged down by the lack of obstruction being called or hooking and holding being called or just blatant freaking suspendable hits being called. And they don't even want to address it. You, you, you hear nobody in what I'd call, quote-unquote, the mainstream media of hockey saying, how about we just call the rule book the way it is? You'll see it on Twitter. You'll see it on blogs. You'll hear it on podcasts. But no one in the mainstream media that goes into every single home in Canada that watches the hockey says, we need to do something about the penalties not being caught on the ice. It's just not discussed. Yeah, it's disappointing. Uh, biggest criticism I get to that suggestion is I don't want the game to just be a special teams fest well here's the thing at first it might be to readjust to the standard well it was in 2006 it was yeah and it and it was fine because guess what happened players adjusted and what the result of that was wasn't more power plays towards the end as much as it was guys not reaching in at all but the flow of even strength hockey was tremendous yeah, there was no flow in that game I watched tonight against Columbus with Pittsburgh. None. It was the worst game of hockey I've watched all year. And I've watched Calgary and, and the Avalanche play and, and teams that are struggling. But that was just blurg hockey. That was terrible. There's no flow out there. Yeah, I was fortunate. I had a house, you had fun. Of, I had a house of like 25 first graders over for my daughter's birthday party. You know what I was going to say? You better clarify that. And, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> Sorry. But it was not in the background, but I really wasn't paying too much attention to it. But it really seems me. like 
there wasn't much to be had there. And that that's not a I, – I really don't care who wins the games. I just like to be entertained, and, and that's, yep. that's our topic tonight. I, can, can you be entertained? Um, and this is, the, it, this is why the whole bigger net thing, it's not about the nets. You want more scoring chances. I don't care if there's, you know, 25 quality scoring chances and there's no goals because it means the goalies made 25 really good saves. That's entertaining. You don't need more goals. You just need more chances. The, the, the bigger nets idea is the laziest fucking stupidest idea out there. It really is. I, I'm sorry. It's so small-minded. <laughs> like, okay, so what is that going to do for you? So now maybe 2% more of the shots that go off some guy's ass that aren't entertaining, to, like the random variance changes a little bit? Is that what <laughs> – that doesn't change the enjoyment of watching the game. Making the goals wider or taller or whatever doesn't create the space in the offensive zone for the players to actually get the puck even on net. That's the problem at the moment. Players can't get themselves into positions to do it, whether you want to credit the, the coaches for having better defensive systems, which I think is a load of baloney, um, or whether you want to credit uh, the players for actually being responsible on defense, which I would probably give some credence to. But it's mainly because when they get back into defensive position, they're allowed to pull, hold, block, and keep stop players illegally getting to the spots that they need to be to score. Simple as that. And here are some issues that I never, never hear addressed about the bigger nets idea. What level do you start the bigger nets at? Well, you'd have to go all the way back to the, the juniors, like all the way back to Pee Wee. And, okay. You know, Great. Are the nets big enough there anyway? It's tiny. Do that. Whatever. Oh, you forgot that hockey is one of the most socioeconomically yep. <laughs> cock blocks more kids from playing than anything. I mean, it's not a sport that is conducive for kids to join up. It's too expensive for uh, much of the United States. It's why it's not as popular. So what you're going to do is if you take your suggestion there and go all the way back to the youth leagues to make this infrastructure change, you're adding cost to every rink in the entire in, in every city, in every town, at every rink. That's why you said it's a lazy decision. I fully agree. You're exactly on the money. Okay, so Literally. let's let's say okay, let's let's not do that to all the rinks. Let's let's not spend all that money. So let's bump the net change up to what? College you, juniors. Um, well, if they do it in the NHL, they'll do it in the AHL. If they do it in the NHL, they'll do it in the AHL. In fact, they'll trial it in the AHL okay. first. So the goalies when they finally hit professional level get to relearn their angles yeah and oh, so basically this, this sounds brilliant the whole thing goblet. is so well thought out do i hear any tone of sarcasm at all in your voice there whatsoever it is so stupid <laughs> i agree embarrassing it's even discussed you know, just, something so easy and simple as just calling penalties and we have a template of what to do and how raise your hand listeners if you hated the the 2005-06 season oh nobody has their hand up what a shocker it was a really fun season and hey, everybody who, who enjoyed lost, it who lost the stanley cup that year Edmonton and uh, Carolina played for the final so the Edmonton fans will be the only ones that had their hand up then otherwise everyone else would have kept their hand down yeah, but maybe not. That's the last time they did anything. Actually, it's a really good... Jeez, who was on that team? Was it a Chris Pronger that played on that team? That was the one-year Pronger. Ryan, Ryan Smith, I believe, was towards the tail end. Fernando Pisani had a hell of a run. Ethan Morrow. But no no coincidence that freaking Pronger was on there. I mean, you know, he did just retire into the Hall of Fame. While still on an NHL playing roster, so you know. But I they can they can, but they can change the rules for that stuff, but they won't do it for on the ice. I yeah. I have never heard a complaint about that year from fans. Like, oh no. wow, I don't enjoy this. The, the other the other thing about creating speed in the game, which is what this would do, this would create speed and space for the skilled players, is that when a player goes to make a body check, and I mean. 
a ferocious one to try and nail someone, it's going to be awesome to watch because it's two extremely fast-moving projectiles running into each other. Better than this garbage we get where players are getting boarded along the boards because they're already tied up with someone and a third idiot comes flying in from the other side of the freaking zone and just slams it straight back into the wall, back into the boards, smashes their head up against it. I want... I think there are times that people think that I don't want hockey to be physical, which is not true. I want it to be exciting physical. I want to see bodies flying around on the ice from clean hits. And if you don't have any speed, then you can't get that. And it's one of the most frustrating things about the hitting. Big, clean, open ice body checks is much more exciting than having three guys pinned up against the wall trying to fight for a puck because it's the only place the puck is because it gets dragged in there by all the holding. And then have some idiot come flying in and hit someone from behind. That's not what hard, physical, tough hockey is. That's just cheap shots. Well, the flip side to that, and it's something that we discuss quite frequently, is if you're going to have that speed opened up, you need to be able to lay the hammer down when things don't go right. And they they don't do that. No. The one-two-game stuff is not... Landis Cobb just did just did the Matt Cook hit on Savard on Brad Marchant. That's basically what he did. Blindsided him, came in, whacked him in the head, first point of contact. It's just that Brad Marchant, you know, hasn't had his career destroyed by it, and Landis Cog doesn't have a reputation. But that gets two games. They made like basically a Matt Cook rule for that hit, and they've just gone, nah, fuck it, we don't care. It's not going to change Landis Cog's, Landis Cog's behaviour. Two games and what? Thirty grand out of a five point five million dollar contract per year. Ridiculous. Yeah, what's Landis Cog? What's two games? Ah, I got to hit that guy. I don't like him. Whatever. Yeah, that won't. That that's not going to stop him from doing it again if there's a situation where that happens. It's like you know telling a kid, "Oh, don't go and put the dog on fire," and then giving him a freaking lighter. Well, maybe that's a bit extreme. Perhaps. You get what I'm saying, though. Yeah, and I guess one of the other things that we could discuss about it would be, uh, I know goalie equipment's a very popular thing that's discussed, and, and I'm okay with it. And from what I hear, most most goalies are are fine with it, with the caveat that we don't get hurt. If it's safe and smaller, we don't care. And in twenty. I used to, um, for years, I would I worked in one of the local pro shops here, and I used to go to Toronto for the big equipment shows that happened. So I got a chance to kind of look at the, the high-end stuff that was coming out for the next year and all that. And that was 15 years ago. And the stuff was really good then, and you, you just know the technology's there now to make things smaller and, and safer for the goaltenders to protect them so that it's... Uh, they can be a little bit more slender and not bulked up and not compromise their safety. And I do agree with the goalies. Uh, I do not fault them at all for, for not wanting to change if, in fact, safety is the concern. But I do think they can accomplish what needs to happen with the technology out there now. I Everything you said there is right. I, I, just, I can't see a situation now with, like you said, the, the hardware technology that they can't shrink it and yet have the have the the goalies be safe. It would be sort of beyond progression in the general sense of the word if, if, if that was the case that they couldn't they couldn't fix that that aspect of it. But you you do sit there and and wonder why it's taken to this point because they they seem to change sort of little bits and pieces of the goalie equipment all year. It should basically just be form fitting body armor and it should be tight fitting as long as the players can move and that basically all the body parts that they need covered are covered that includes the joins of like the the hips and the the shoulders are covered so that they're not going to you know get absolutely toasted by a puck it should just be as tight as possible like you have a look at what the goalies were wearing back when you know you and i both thought that hockey look was a lot of fun to watch like the the 1990s to the 95 before that first lockout um it 
the goal is there's so much net to see. And it's not because they're not six foot three or four. It's just because there's not that lot of not that much of equipment on them. I I do get the one argument about how the sticks have changed. Yep, agree with that too. But I think it also goes back to my point of the protective technology with the super Kevlar builds and the, just the the high tech plastics that are available these days. Just with with all of that stuff, do you think it would help with player safety if the skaters, not the goalies, but the skaters had to go back to wearing stuff that was more about being padded rather than being like a freaking yes. stormtrooper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Goalies, yeah. Um, yeah, the hard-shelled stuff, um, and I even think the elbow pads that I have now are harder-shelled. I think I got bought them from Canadian Tire in the early 90s. I don't know how the hell they're still around. So um, get what I uh, yeah. But... Yeah, my yeah, they're harder, but the ones before that were were softer, and even my shoulder pads I wore in college were Don Cherry Winwell Youth Larges. Uh, they were the soft shell ones because I just didn't want the the bulky uh, padding. Yeah, and well, the just and I didn't get hurt, isn't it? But you know, you make you lay a big hit or, or take one, you feel it. And um, that's how it kind of should be. You shouldn't feel nothing when you lay somebody out. No. Because the armor is just ridiculous. I, I think you should have to, you know, have have a little bit of give on that. You know, you can believe Stickle when he says, I don't remember actually hitting Crosby because he probably didn't feel it. Oh, stop. That was intentional. Sorry. <laughs> All right, sorry to bring that. <laughs> you shouldn't have brought that up. But all I'm going to say about that is anybody who skated, played ice hockey, if you're looking the other way and you accidentally bump into something, your immediate instinctual reaction is going to be to look at where the source of that collision came from. You're going to automatically look there. But when you intentionally run into something, you can stare straight ahead and not look back because you are already bracing for contact. Which one do you think that fell under? Hang on, what, what was that? The Steckle. Oh, you know, no, I know. Steckle. Oh, you're right, I should not have brought it up. Well, you know, that's a touchy no, subject. No. I just wrote the, that article on Sid and how age is going to catch up to him, the league standards are catching up to him, and the fact that 24 years old is the the prime of a forward and for much of Crosby's 24 25 year old years uh, he was on the sidelines because David Steckel decided to pull a whoopsie daisy intentional blindside hit no I know and it's it's one of those things where and I think I've said this the last four or five days on Twitter the NHL is the only league that makes it harder for its skilled stars to actually do well only league in the world for any sport whatsoever the ones I, I that just, do just, well are the young guns that just have the energy that doesn't quit, and they don't know any better yet. Like they just go a million miles an hour, but you can't keep doing that. No, so it's either going to become a younger and a younger game, or it's just going to they yeah. <laughs> a younger and a younger game in a league where the GMs are older, average age older. than any of the other four major sports, and they. Do, are not willing to give and grant these roster spots to the younger players. So by the time they finally, quote-unquote, earn their chance, they're actually closer to the end of their prime than what yep. most people realize. So you have a league that's not that's creating situations where only the real youthful legs can contribute, and the decision-makers do not feel the need to turn the keys over to those kind of players. Um. Just quickly, with there needs to be a generational change in regards to the NHL and who runs it. I think, and, and I think you know most people would, would probably see that. Now, the reality is the owners run it. Bettman just does what the owners want. Now, the Chicago organization got turned around 
when their owner passed away, but they had a couple of pieces in place that, that made that actually possible to happen. Is it going to take Boston? Is it going to take the Flyers to have their owners... Oh, boy. Very morbid kick, here. Kick the can. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying, don't you? Yeah. And have new, hopefully younger, different directional heads in the organization. And look, I'll, I'll will legitimately stick Pittsburgh in with this. I think the best thing for Pittsburgh might be the fact that Mario gets his hand out of the team, to be honest. I yeah, think it, that could, actually, it could be I, better. I could, think that could be worse. We just it don't could know. Be. And you, you you do take that you do take that risk, but um, I, I think there are some owners in the league that just think that it should be a passage to write to make money. And if you don't put a product on the ice that people want to watch, you're not going to make that money. And I think the last five or six years has sort of proven that they're they're beyond that kind of thought process. You're right. Though they're eventually going to... Sorry be... for the morbid, the morbid candor. <laughs> they will be phased out, and uh, you may have highlighted on one of those ways that may get them out. Well, how else are you going to get them out? They're not going to sell. <laughs> well, Lemieux's selling out. Okay, so there's one. But all those other guys, they've had those teams for centuries, it feels like. You know what I mean? So they're not going to... Yeah, look, unfortunately, the Grim Reaper's going to have to come along, tap them on the shoulder and say, hello, let's go for sort of any cultural change to happen. Like, you look at what... You go back to the Tyler Sagan trade. That happened because of the owner. Simple as that. And you have a look at where Boston is now because of that trade. Yep. Amongst Justif other things, but yeah. Justification enough for, you know, someone coming along and saying, would you give me the club? Any other... Um ideas to improve the game other than just doing what we said the first five seconds of the podcast um i don't know i mean they made this is the thing they made a couple little tweaks this year in that instead of the home team instead of the away team always putting their, their sticks down on the ice first in a in a face-off dot it's the defensive team that puts their stick down first mm -hmm. in the face -off dot and i just don't think i'm indifferent like, on that but that's my point. That's going to do... Look, face-offs are a coin flip anyway. There's so much involved in it apart from the guy actually taking the face-off that they get there and go and, and then they want to grow... It okay. is an advantage, I mean... No, I, I, I get that. The, the point that I'm sort of trying to make is, though, that they'll go and tinker with all these little tiny rules, like things that you would consider would be stock standard, yet they won't call the game stock standard like it is in the rule book. I just, I just don't get it. That's the bit that I think confuses me the most in that they don't seem to put... We complain all the time about coaches that don't put players in a situation to succeed, right? So if you look at, if you look at the caretakers of the NHL, at what point have they gone and put this game in a situation to succeed since the 05-06 since the season? They've not, have they? They've just allowed it to collapse back into this calamitous little glump of a slow down, slow down, try not to get scored against sort of a game rather than encouraging teams to win a game rather than not lose. Mm -hmm. Oh, I know what we could do. Yeah? Smaller pucks. What the? F what? That's no, just as dumb as the fucking net idea. All right, cool. Right? I mean, there'll be more chance to go in if they're smaller. Yeah. <laughs> at least at least with that statement you've just made, the easy argument is no one can see the puck on TV as it is already, if you're a casual viewer. Like they're going to be able to see a smaller puck. And I think for me, that's the big thing. A casual viewer is not going to care if the score is 1-0, if they've watched it and they've been excited by it. Because you can get a 1-0 game and it's exciting. You can also get a 5-4 game, which is boring as all hell, and the nine goals have gone in off, off freaking shin pads or butt cheeks or whatever, whatever. And it's just been a shitty, crappy game to watch. You want the puck going up and down the ice. You want guys taking chances and risks. You want goalies making saves. 
pretty much. So, no bigger nets, right? We're that's our stance. I I could almost say confidently we agree on that one. Good. <laughs> Good. So that's that. That's our bitch session on how to fix the game, and it's there to be had. Just got to do it. It, that's, I think that's the thing for me is that it is actually quite a simple fix and they're making it harder than it has to be. And I think it's because the NHL want everything to be close and tight. There are going to be teams that are 30th in the league and teams that are the best in the league at things, right? Just bear with the fact that the teams that are terrible have to draft properly and become better. You've created a salary cap to create that parity. Don't make the on-ice product terrible to create... Um, False parity. That to me would just be a folly. Particularly with Connor McDavid is going to be unreal to watch. Same with, with Jack Eichel. Are they going to have that opportunity in the next seven, what are they, they're 18? In the next six years to try and put up the numbers that Sid and Ovi were at that young age. And I don't know if they will at the moment. And that really sucks. Yeah, that's disappointing. Well, we'll see. I don't Hopefully we're wrong. No. We're not going to be you, wrong. You could be going blue. So, back to that Pittsburgh game. <laughs> so I'm going to end up ranting out again. You, that was terrible. You, you watched it. I had it in the background, so I think I win that one. Yeah, you did. You won out there. Um, so, the, the pieces that I gathered it, were that Flurry played really well again. Yep. Made some... Uh, highlight saves towards the end and it actually bought him a little bit of time he gave him a chance to actually tie the game as opposed to being down three nil it was a two on O breakaway and he managed to go from right to left and make the save with his pad i mean it helped that felino was always reading pass because of where he had the puck in front of his body so he, he was never going to be able to shoot from where he was but it still took flurry to read that and have the athleticism to push across and get the pad across to, to make the stop. And I think it might have been a minute and a half later they scored to tie it. It might not have even been that long, but um, there was an important save and things that you want a guy that you're paying X amount to to make. So it was really good. Now, after that whole complaining first part of the podcast, I, I think the Penguins had six power plays this evening and went there over. Were, there, were t- there were 10 total in the game, and there still should have been five or six more. And they just didn't call them because they just went, I can't call it because I just called one. And well, and that's the whole 2005-06 argument we had at the start of the podcast. Call it. They'll stop. Yeah. Yep. But, yeah, the Pittsburgh power play. Could be good. Is All right, it? so the, the problem I have with the power play is that no one seems to want to shoot the puck. It's like they're all deferring to each other. Now, one thing I did not know about Phil Kessel that you said you were aware of is that he's not great at shooting the one-timer, right, which is fine. I've got no problems with that. But then how do you utilize him on that left side of the ice so he's got the open net so he's got the open side of the ice to shoot that wrist shot from. So how do you get the puck across to him quick enough that he can just load up his wrist shot rather than the one-timer? How do you get that? Because that was always the biggest complaint with the Penguins power play, is that left side of the ice, there was no one there to do anything with it. So tell me, Gunnar, how do we fix it? Triggerman up top has to be willing to shoot and shoot frequently to... Well, that's not the tang. Well... It is Latang, and he's not. No, doing it's not. It, he's so. not shooting the puck. <laughs> so I believe Bob Grove, uh, formerly of uh, the Pittsburgh Radio Network, he had a stat that said that Latang only has two power play goals in the last. It was the last eighty-eight games, and now it would be eighty-nine. Uh, that's that's dog shit. Look who he's playing with. And he's yeah. always got the puck at the top in a prime spot on that power play when they're set up. How do you not just find a way? And it, I wrote about it the other day. Uh, somebody's like, well, you know, it's tough to score from back. Like, excuse making. The Buffalo Sabres <laughs> of 2014-15 were like the worst team ever, right? 
They had their power play was thirteen point four percent. That's pretty terrible. Mm. Rasmus Ristolainen, who was a rookie, had four power play goals last year. So give me a break. He's Chris Letang is not a good power play player. This is not a new conclusion that I'm coming to now. Uh, the frustrating part about Chris Letang's power play game lately is that he was really good in one area on it, and that was Kennedy. gaining zone entries. And that has evaporated. It is gone for whatever reason. He's not doing a very good job at that. And and he's surely not doing anything worth a damn as the quote-unquote QB of the power play because he never shoots, and the other team knows it. So guess what they get to do? They get to read his body language knowing that they don't have to quite stay in a shooting lane, and they can cheat and guess to what side he's going to dish to, and that takes away time and space from the next guy. Yeah, it's 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 clever in regards to the way they attack the power play. So, and there's no movement, so it's even easier. No, no, there's none. It's it, I will say this though: it is it is interesting um, with Latang in that there was a stage there in his career when he was running the power play where he would shoot all the time. He would just shoot, but he would never hit the net. He would never get it in a situation where there would be a rebound or it would even hit an opposing player to just drop at the net. And I think that's made him, I think that's made him gun shy. And I think it's one of the reasons why he just doesn't shoot anymore. He can't hit the net from that far out. He hit the post tonight with, with uh, one of the things he, he did, which was disappointing for him. He always struck me as the guy that was shooting to score, and that's really not your job at the top of the point. Your your job is to shoot it through the first tier of shot blockers, get, it, get it to tap. that mid to late tier on net and wherever the chips lie at that point because the, sport's yep. a, the sport of variance, and you're just increasing your, your rolls at the dice of getting something good to happen. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you get it through the first tier of shot blocking, and you go from there. But it's got to be on net, and it's got to get through. Uh, Matt, Matt Niskanen, who used to be on the Penguins, was tremendous at that. He always got his shots through. I was always so impressed with his ability, uh, whether it be through slap shot or just a simple uh, hard wrist shot. Um, whereas I think Latang is every time he shoots, he's he's really trying to to muster one in. When really it's just get it through, have some pace on it, and and have that pace be enough to where a guy can tip it and do something with it. Well, you, you, you kind of hope that Gonchar can help him fix that. It was one of the things that was brilliant about Gonchar. He got the puck through and would hit goalies or hit pads, uh, hit hit bodies. Well, and well the other just... part of Gonchar, not to interrupt, but Gonchar was not shy at shooting, had a great one-timer, and guess what that did? Oh, teams, create, yeah. teams had to get in front of him. And he was great at walking the blue line, having the guy follow him into his shooting lane, and he would just slide it back to who? Yeah, I know. Evgeny Malkin with his wide-open shooting lane. And that used to be a thing of beauty, and I really miss that. And that I, I miss Sergei Gonchar, Evgeny Malkin, power play guy. Yeah, the, the thing is, though, Latang and Malkin used to be able to do that. Nah, and that was Latang when. Latang never puts it in his wheelhouse. Not consistently. No, but he, he, can, he can walk the line when people get dragged to him because he was shooting the puck, but he couldn't hit the pass as well as Goncha. But, you know, Latang to Goncha. He's walking it the wrong way. No, no, I appreciate that argument. So it makes things a little bit more, more difficult in, in that sense, but he's not shooting the puck anymore. Like, the puck will go to Kessel, it'll go back up to the top to the Latang, and the defenseman, well, the forward that has to make up their mind where they go, they don't even bother coming to the Latang. They just fill across straight away to Malcolm because they know that's where the puck's going. They don't even bother to worry about it going back to Kessel because Kessel's not a one-time threat to just let it off really quickly. Hornquist is sitting in front of the net in, in this particular game, actually, getting absolutely uh, destroyed. I'm surprised that the man's going to have a part of his body that's not black from all the bruises. And for, for Hornquist to just have to keep going left to right, try and plant to make sure he doesn't get knocked over, same thing again and again and again. I can see why Sid wants that half wall because he barely sees the puck if he plays down low at the moment because all they do is prune a pass. 
Or they try and force a cross a cross ice pass in a hole that's not there. And it's frustrating um, playing that role that Hornquist does. Uh, I've done it in the past to where I used to get really frustrated when I, I you would see shooting lanes get passed up, and there you are. You, I mean, you're, the whole time that they're just kind of enjoying their perimeter passing, it's not too taxing, <laughs> you're getting beat in front of the net and you're just like come on already i'm here i got my body position let me let me work with something here i can't do this forever and it must be frustrating to play that spot on this team right now well crosby's not even getting the puck because he's down on the the right hand side of the net for his left hand shot for the tips and all that sort of stuff in the garbage goals they're not even getting the puck around quick enough for malcolm to just take a shot from the half wall well, to create sorry that's on latang no, no, I know. It's one of those things where, look, they finally made some changes on their back end in regards to their pairings. That power play is either going to have to change their setup or change their personnel to suit the setup that they've currently got. And I don't know which will happen first, if at all. I just think Rick Tocket's a terrible coach, but that's just my opinion. Yeah, it's a junk setup. I just you, you get there and you look at that talent and it's like the setup's not set up to make the most of that talent. So the coaching staff's not putting that team in a position to succeed, which is all as a player as you want from your coaching staff is to put you in a situation where you can be good and therefore make money. Pretty much. But I was happy with the pairings tonight. Well, you know. Latang for that little bash session that I just gave him on the power play. I, I don't feel that way about his even strength play. In fact, I, uh, I I always speak very highly of his even strength and even penalty killing skills. Yeah, uh, I just don't like his power play stuff. Uh, aside from that, he's a really great player. He hasn't been so far this year, but that's a really small sample when compared to the eight or nine years that we have that show the other. Yeah, but he is very good. And tonight he, he had a pretty good game, 21 shot attempts, four on the ice, 16 against. So he's a high event player, but 56%. That's not bad. He looked, he looked much more comfortable with Martin next to him, though. He really did. Both of them look much happier to be playing together because they seem to read off each other a little better. They must be more predictable in each other's head in regards to what the other player is going to do. And I know before the podcast you said Marta's possession numbers were around 40 or something like that, 40%. Um, but he didn't look egregious. Yeah, no, no, that's what I mean. Which is nice, weird, considering they were partners. They could be that. Yeah, like, but they did get separated on line changes a little bit. They must have, because Alimato only had 12 shot attempts, four on the ice, and Latang had 21. <laughs> like, yeah. These are all five-on-five five stats, aren't they? Uh, yes, they are. Yeah. So there were situations there where Marta and Scuderi did get stuck out on the ice together because of the change. Um, and what was I have to admit, what was good was that they've gone and made the flip with Cole and, and Marta. They kept Dumoulin and Lovejoy together. And Dumoulin and Lovejoy have been consistent all year. You know what you're getting from them. You're not going to get anything exciting. But you're also not going to get anything completely terrible from them. So if flipping Marta and Cole help improve two pairings that were dumpster fires, basically, Pittsburgh are going to be okay until they work out exactly what they want to do with Clendinning and Pouliot for the lineup. Yeah, and back to the, the Latang Mata thing from tonight, which was mm-hmm. so I, I'm looking at Ali Mata's on ice teammates for the game. Mm-hmm. He played 14 minutes and 19 seconds with Latang, and the next defenseman that he played with, from what I see, is Ben Lovejoy for only 33 seconds. So where this discrepancy, I guess Latang was just taking longer shifts. That's the only way I can explain that. Who did, who, who did Latang play with when Marta went off the ice? Who was Latang's next highest partner five on five? Uh, that's probably a good good way to do it. Sid, Phil, defensively. 
Ian Cole, 1 minute. Dumoulin, 46 seconds. Skidari, 37. Lovejoy, 27. So he was with Matt. I mean, that that you're only talking about situations to where they're one may have gotten off the ice. Because it shows you how Letang without Marta on there create. Okay, so basically what should happen is they should just have four forwards and Letang out there, and they'll create shot opportunities both ways probably. <laughs> both ways, definitely. Yeah. But I even said his possession numbers aren't good this year. Yeah, but I think you'd label that more towards um, who he's played with and the fact that he's being tagged with Kunitz, who's not been great, and then Dupuy. It's like they seem to... I I have to admit, I don't blame the coaching staff for doing it this way, is that, you know, they gave Sid what he's comfortable and familiar with, i.e. Kunitz, um, and that didn't work, so they moved Kunitz. They put Dupuy up there, who Sid's comfortable and familiar with, and possessionally, they've not been great together. Forty-four throw- percent this year. They're not. They've thrown. It's not good. No, but they've thrown both Bennett up there, so they'll give. They'll give the Sid and Duper thing a few more games, because that's what they did with Kunitz, and then they'll change it if it doesn't work. It's the one thing I will give this coaching staff for is that yeah, they but- do wait it out. Give the Sid huh? Bennett thing more time than the Sid oh, no, they will. Dupuy thing. I, I, no, they I, scanned it tonight. They No, they will. They will go back to it. They will go back to it. I bet you any money they will give it another crack. It might be with a different left winger than Dupuy, but they will go back to it. They will go back to Sid because Bennett can do those passes that Kunitz is struggling to make, which is put the puck into zones and areas that Crosby can skate onto it with speed. And you can see it out there. There are situations where Bennett puts the puck with Sid Wilson and he goes flying. Now, Bennett needs to replicate that basically eight out of ten times to stay up there because the so what Kunitz room used he's to do. Being... Sorry? I, that's what Kunitz used to do. Yeah, and, and, and that's the bar that he has to try and, and set himself. Like, he can get quite a lot of primary assists from doing those passes to Sid and having Sid get on the rush and, and, and score goals on the rush. Or he'll end up with a secondary assist from a rebound. So, the, you could see it in the last two games that Bennett's played with Sid that he knows how to get the puck to where Sid wants it to be. Bennett gets a little bit lost on the ice when he's trying to be where Sid needs him to be, and that might be the biggest problem that Bennett's got. It'll just be a lot of watching game tape and and working out where to... Just watch a lot of tape from Kunitz and Dupuy and work out where they go and how they get to that spot when Sid's got the puck. That's probably the best way for him to learn. But they got a left wing problem. Yeah, you're right. They do. Kunitz, oh, hang on, Kunitz. I thought would bounce back. Perron's not the problem. No, he's, he's varying, doing okay. He's very against his shots percentage is his problem. He, he's doing pretty much as far as I'm concerned. He's doing everything else right. He just can't buy one. So if he gets hot, if they keep him and he gets hot in the last ten or twelve games and his shooting percentage is still only four percent or five percent, then he'll be fine for the playoffs because he'll be hot and he'll be confident going in. But for his, his year statistics, it's not going to look great. But he's doing everything else right. But Kunitz, he didn't bounce back really this year much. Uh, uh, I mean, he's doing okay third line, I think. Yep, yep. he's but good there. Dupuy, uh, great story. Uh, very easy to root for. Uh, but results-based, not where it needs to be for a top-line left-winger for Sidney Crosby. I do realize he scored uh, the game prior on a great feed from Sid and nice finish. Uh, but 44% is 44%. That's just not good enough. Well, not when you're playing with supposedly the best player in the world. And then Platnikov is a whatever player, you know. Who can't crack the lineup when well, you've got an eight. probably a good thing. Won't hit those bonuses. Yeah, it's, it's going to be... Pittsburgh have actually finally got depth, strength, or strength of depth, if you want to put it, Cameron. And they need to use that depth somehow to to fix up two areas, I suppose, really, is uh, actual tangible offensive production on the left-hand side and better puck-moving skills on the back end. Now, I think that they've got two legitimate replacements in their system that they could use. So that they might solve that problem internally 
but the coaching staff haven't shown a propensity to want to attempt any of that yet. Still a long way to go in the season. So do they try and move someone from their position of strength, which is the right side, to get someone that you could consistently see results being obtained tangibly on that left side? Well, we've discussed this in the past, and the answer or the person that's going to get you what you need is Hornquist, and it's not a popular idea, but you're not going to get anything for... Well, you're not trading Phil Kessel. Let's start there. Uh, yeah. Daniel Sprong's not going to be traded. Bo Bennett's not going to land you anything. His value to the team is worth more to keep try plugging away at, at having him play well for you than whatever you're going to get in a potential trade with him. So if, if say, Horquist goes... <clears throat> Does that end up meaning the depth chart on the right-hand side of the ice is Kessel, Bennett, Eric Fair, Daniel Sprong? Or even Dupuis? Um, see, I think the argument we have with Dupuis is I think you and I both think that the game might just pass him to be in that top six role. No, and I, I agree, but like as yeah. for, you're just talking right-wing depth. And yeah, then you, yeah, and then you still have Brian Rust that'll come back from injury. Yeah. So and he's a he's a he's a good fourth line player. He's a bad third line player, and he's a terrible top six player. And that's sort of the way you have to look at it with Rust. So you know you got Jim Rutherford, according to Josh Yoey of uh, DK on Pittsburgh Sports that Jim Rutherford thinks he needs a number three or four defenseman before the end of the year. And every time he's kind of opened up about his intents, he's followed. He's followed. So, so who's the trade okay. chip? If not, well, Horn, then not Hornquist, then who? Matt Murray. Do we really want to do that? I know um, it's very fun to watch uh, Flurry do well. But if we have a, a larger scope picture in mind here, and if you were to play the cap the right way, it would be uh, yeah, the unpopular keep, choice in a, in a year or so, maybe two, moving on from Flurry and giving Murray the keys on a dirt cheap ELC, saving money, getting similar production. Because last year he had a 941 save percentage in the AHL, and so far he's plugging around this year at 951. Oh, is that all? Jeez, that's terrible. So, how long do you hold that down? I'm not talking about like right now. That's absurd. I'm talking <laughs> no, no, no. about. You don't, you don't trade Murray. You, you trade Jerry. But if you go and trade Tristan Jerry, you're not trading for a top four defenseman. You're trading. You're trading for a bit part bottom six player with an asset like that to try and fill a hole that you should have filled in um, in free agency. What I'm going to say is, what... I'm trading Flurry before Murray. Yes, but that's not happening this year. But you're exactly right. But no, correct, and I don't want it to. But, no, no, I get what you mean. But you're not you, trading you, Murray for some third or fourth defenseman when no. we've talked about the value of having cheap, effective goaltending, and they f might have something drop in their lap. Goaltenders are almost impossible to, to draft for. So when you get one that's in your system from a low draft pick, do not trade them away. Unless you're like the Rangers who have Lundqvist or, you know, people along those lines. Fleury is my favourite player, but by no means is he at that level of player to you for you to get rid of your top-notch prospect for a third or fourth pairing defenseman. And that's even if somebody's willing to, to pay that for a goalie because goalies are weird and nobody likes to to do that. Oh, look, I'll tell you this, though. I will give Fleury credit. Is he was the number one draft pick in regards to how crazy goaltenders are in regards to trying to predict how they turn out. He's been pretty productive if you look at what he's done over his career. He's had some definite downs, but for number and one draft His downs sunk the primes of Crosby and Malkin. That said, this last year and a half have been yeah. really, really good. Just a shame they weren't three years but ago. But it doesn't but change yeah. my analysis up from to, to that point where he, he started playing better. He still sunk that team. Oh, yeah. 
No, no, I think I think everyone can uh, agree agree with that. But you look at what he provides now. What he's giving now is great because it'll give enough time for Murray to just because they'll probably play Murray all year this year. He'll probably come up and be back up next year, and then they'll have to start thinking about how many games do they split between Murray and Fleury. Yeah, I think that's a logical plan. So you do not trade Murray right now. But I only brought him up as like who are the who are yeah. these magical trades? No, 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 that's that's the thing. Who are the chips that Pittsburgh can get? can give to get because you're not going to get a top four defenseman for free you're trading Pouliot but if he can't crack you as a top four why are they trading you a top four yeah exactly although we traded away the spray for Lovejoy so it happens well we traded a a low end top four guy for a bottom pairing guy that's how that happens (laughs) yeah mind you though we got a low end top four back for a a very low-end, bottom-pairing guy. He's just been asked to be playing as a number two, and it doesn't work. I mean, Kunitz could have been that guy before, but I don't see it now. It's really funny with this with the Pittsburgh roster over the last couple of years. It's felt like every time they've been in a position to make a trade or a move or something like that, that particular player's production has just fallen off the planet, or they've gotten injured and they can't trade from a position of strength, i.e. losing... Losing Paul Martin this year to free agency with him just walking out, if that back six had have stayed healthy, you could have traded Paul Martin and got quite a lot back for him. Because oh, that back six was looking solid enough to do it. I wouldn't have traded Paul. I know you wouldn't have, but you could have. You had the option there. You would have had Latang, Erhoff, a healthy Marta. Here's an uh, example I would have used a few years ago. I would not. I, I would have been content doing the same thing and letting Paul walk. That's how good he was. Brooks Orpik was the guy to do that with. Yeah, yeah. Everyone the perceived would. value was through the roof. His actual value was crap. They could have really <laughs> done well trading him, and they would not have missed a beat. But I understand. I get why they didn't trade him, though. They weren't a team that valued puck possession. They were a team that valued intangibles, and Orpik brings those in a... Those and a hell of a lot more of, of that kind of garbage stuff. Well, not garbage stuff, but stuff that doesn't provide you with tangible results. Now, you'll find people will make the argument that this team lacks leadership, but I don't think Orpik really helped improve any of that anyway. So they could have got rid of him and just improved from the whole Sutter addition by subtraction. And that's the tail end of Orpik that I'm talking about, not what he did when he was healthy and in his prime. He was an extremely effective at what he did. But the game's changed now, and players like him find it harder and harder to actually be positively productive for their team. But I don't see anybody else on this roster you're moving. Ah, sure, you'll get the dope set on St. Malkin, but Jesus Christ, those people. <laughs> no, you're right. So realistically, you are looking, because Dupuis off the market because of his health, but you've got Kunitz and you've got Hornquist, the two guys that I think are movable assets, right? The issue you've got with Kunitz is that everyone can see that his offensive production has fallen off the face of the map. So who's going to trade for a guy like Kunitz with what he's got on his ticket and his production just falling off the face of the planet? I just can't see it happening. Oh, no, I don't see it happening now. I thought there was a time where it may have worked. But if he was playing well and was said, that would have never happened anyways. Yeah, it's hard. I have to admit, it's got to be tough trying to be proactive in moving a player before he falls off the map because not everyone does. But when they do, and they're on contracts that they got that they earned from being productive, all of a sudden those contracts look egregious. Like Justin Applocator. Actually, what was that deal? Infinity years, a million infinity dollars. <laughs> it was no, that it was, bad. Uh, four million ish for seven years. Jesus, the four million part's okay for me personally. Uh, someone but... did a really nice breakdown, and he's looks identical to the David Clarkson 
path. Jeez, it does show you how visual perceptions. I like the way he plays his game, but obviously his production is not there. So it does show you how we had that conversation about Hornquist, how it looks like he's trying harder than everyone else in the ice. That's purely a he's visual played, perception. Uh, he's played well the last two games, Hornquist, with the third line. And I think that, that role, not that maybe a, I don't mean a third line role fits him better, but I think playing with Kunitz and Benino fits what he does better. Like fits his skill set better, yeah, because he's he's not deft with the puck. He can't make little tiny touch passes that are needed for the particularly for Sid. So I I get what you're saying. He doesn't have to play third line minutes in the you know between the top three lines. No, he plays on that line and then plays first power play. Yeah. But if you look at the five-on-five five ice time of, of those three lines, there's no reason why they can't play, even strength-wise, almost equal time. Particularly with the way the first line's playing at the moment, because they can't find anything to mesh with Sid. Really, Gino's line should be the one playing the well, most amount of five-on-five. On five. Sid's got to own some of it, too. That's what I mean. Like, Gino should be getting the most amount of ice time out there Five on five, his line should be. Yeah. Until they can work out how to get Sid going. And that includes Sid working out how to get Sid going. Well, here's the deal with this team. They're so-so possession-wise. They're not excellent. And they rely on a ton of variance for success, which is either going to be there or not. So this season's going to have a lot of wild ups and downs where they win games, they shouldn't lose games, they shouldn't. Fans' emotions are going to be all over the map. And uh, all I can say is just, you know, understand what it is that's happening and just kind of chill out for a bit. Because if you ride the highs and lows for what I think is going to be this year with the current roster, uh, it could be very uh, tiring. You'll age like Obama. Yeah. Hard and fast and not pretty. Is that how barbers age in Australia? No, I said Obama. Oh, jeez. He went from being a young, sprightly man to this old grandpa. That's how all the presidents go. I know. It's the same here with the prime ministers in this country. It's one of those things where if you if you do ride the Penguins game to game and not pay attention to what is just natural variance, particularly with this team having some gaping holes in areas, you're just going to roller coaster yourself to throwing your food up. It's just up and down all year. And good luck to you if you can do that for 82 games. Good grief. Yeah, that seems intense. Yeah. I, just, I don't think I could do it. Well, Pittsburgh has... Pittsburgh has uh, Ray Shero and the Devils and the great Bobby Farnham, who they'll always regret <laughs> waving. <laughs> Devils have played... Um... Devils have, have been better than I thought. Well, Did the I record's ex- better than I thought. I think they're kind yeah, of sort of the playing similar to how I thought. And what did we say? What would be the problem with them? That guy in there it's going to screw them over. Yeah, let's see where they are. He hasn't been total lights out, but 930 is still pretty good for even strength. It's better than above average. For the team, that is. But I assume Schneider's playing a large role in that. But uh, I'll say this about New Jersey. Pittsburgh's 27th in shot suppression. New Jersey, number one. Well, no wonder they're doing okay then. They are. How? So this is this is the thing. But, but, shots are, but should... can I add this? They're also yeah. um, number twenty-nine in shot, shot generation. Yeah. So they're playing very low event hockey, which might not be bad for Pittsburgh right now. Yeah, look, with the amount of shots that they're giving up, and, like, that 2 on O tonight against Fleury was just... If, if that had have been... Uh, I think it was 
Felino and Saad, if they had been Saad coming down the ice with the puck on his stick, who's got confidence at the moment? Because Felino's got no goal-scoring confidence whatsoever. I think he's got one goal in 42 shots or something like that. He was always going to pass. He was never going to take that shot. If the puck had been on the other player's stick, I think the I think Saad scores the goal as opposed to passing it off. So they're being fortuitous in regards to when they're in certain situations, which are bad situations, the players that have got the puck on them on their stick aren't game killers for Pittsburgh at the moment. So they've been in sense. Mm-hmm. Well, by by the time the next the next time we get on here, we'll have the New Jersey game, Minnesota, Colorado with Santa or San Jose on the cusp. So two so one hard game, two games they should win and the Paul Martin reunion. We'll probably speak before that that one, but Yep. Uh, well, it'll give you a chance to gush over Martin, so that's okay. Yeah, he's he's great. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I don't have much more to add. No, I think we're good. All right, at Gunnerstall, at Walshy66. Go to iTunes and give the Hockey Hurts podcast a good rating or review. Or go to HockeyHurts.com to one of our podcasts. And if you choose, or if you so choose, you can donate to the podcast, and that would be much appreciated. Be very kind of you. Thank you. So until next week, I'm Ryan Wilson. I'm Cameron Walsh. See ya.